Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, brought to you by The China Project. Subscribe to The China Project to get the early release, ad-free version of this podcast every week. And of course, you also get your daily newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, simply the best way there is to stay informed about China. And on top of all that, you've got access to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. And if you like this podcast, you will love our next China event on November 2nd in New York with a special VIP evening featuring a live Seneca podcast on November 1st. It's going to be a night and a day of the most interesting and informative discussions on China that you will hear this year. And great networking opportunities as well. Please come introduce yourself to me, to the whole China Project team. Jeremy will be there. Barry Van Wyck will be in town, which is a rare treat, as will our Beijing-based editor, Anthony Tao. It's going to be amazing. So one of the things that really struck me when I moved back to the United States from China after 20 years living in Beijing was how few people in the United States smoke cigarettes anymore. It is a huge change. And going back to China, as I did often before the pandemic anyway, uh, it was just as astonishing just how incredibly prevalent smoking remains in China. So according to the World Bank, between 2000 and 2020, the rate of tobacco use among adults globally actually fell from 34% to 23%. But in China, it only declined from 27% to 26%. And had China's actual use of tobacco declined at rates comparable to the rest of the world, uh, from 2005 to 2020, you would have had 80 million fewer people in the country who would be hooked on nicotine today. 
Today, we revisit the issue of tobacco use in China. Five years ago in July of 2018, Jeremy and I spoke with Matthew Corman of Stanford University about his book on China and tobacco poisonous pandas, but I hadn't really thought much about the issue until reading a fascinating investigative report that just came out uh, in the second week of September. It was led by a reporter from a new not-for-profit investigative news outlet called The Examination in collaboration with three guest contributors from other media outlets, their Spiegel and Initium Media. And the reporting was funded by a grant from the Pulitzer Center, the project, which you can and should read on the Pulitzer Center's website, is called Smoking for the State. And its main piece is titled How China Became Addicted to Its Tobacco Monopoly. It's really quite eye-opening because it focuses, as the article's title suggests, on the role of China National Tobacco Corporation, also known as the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration, and which we will be calling China Tobacco in our conversation today. So joining me to talk about the piece are two of the journalists who worked on it. Jason McClure is a correspondent with The Examination, and this was that new publication is actually among their very first pieces, if not in fact its first. Jason previously taught at the storied journalism school at the University of Missouri in Columbia and was a reporter for Reuters. Jason McClure, welcome to Seneca. Hey, thanks so much, Kaiser. Real pleasure to be here with you. Pleasure to finally meet you. Uh, also joining is Jude Chan, a reporter with Singapore-based Initium Media, or Duan Chuanmei. Uh, Jason and another co-author did a lot of the China-based reporting for this story, and I'm looking forward very much to hearing about the reporting that you did, Jude. Uh, so, Jude, welcome to Seneca, and thank you for staying up late to, to chat with us about tobacco. Hi, everyone. Hi, Kaiser. Uh, it's really honored to be here. Honor to have you. Jason, before we go on, I'm hoping that you or Jude could give us an intro to the other two people who worked on this piece and talk a little bit about their contribution to it. Yeah, uh, thanks so much. You know, we were really lucky to work with a great team of reporters on this project. And this is a project that took uh, a number of months. I started working on this uh, back in January. So this is really an article that we've been working on and off on for eight or nine months. So I really want to thank the examination and the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting for for helping to fund that. That's you know there aren't many news organizations that can support reporters to do this kind of deep reporting. And I was lucky to have some great collaborators. Jude is obviously one of them from Initium Media. Also Christoph Giesen of Der Spiegel. He's Der Spiegel's China correspondent. Hmm. He's lived in China for uh, for seven years. He's worked with other German news agencies there as well. Really a decorated reporter who knows his way around China well. And he's got a great staff of news assistants that work with him as well. And then the other person I would credit is my colleague, Min Yun Zhou, who is a Chinese journalist living here in the U.S. now, who also is just a remarkable researcher, remarkable reporter, and certainly would never have been able to tackle a project like this without the, the input of these really well-sourced and knowledgeable collaborators. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we all know about their Spiegel. Jude, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Initium Media. I, I don't know much about it, except that it's Singapore-based. So are you yourself Singaporean? No, I, I used to work for a Chinese language media in mainland China, and I have been covering public health issues since 2016. And oh. and for Initium, I, I'm working as a freelancer. Uh, I got us. Uh, opportunity to work with Bosnian journalists on Chinese ventilators during the pandemic. 
So this was the first time I cooperated with Initium. And this project with Jason is the second time for a collaboration journalism. Oh, okay. Oh, fantastic. Great. And Jason, naturally, I'm very curious to learn more about the examination and your beat, which really is also uh, about health and specifically, as I think you told me, the sort of the commercial determinants of health. Yeah. So the examination just launched in September. Several of the, the founding editors came from the International Consortium for Investigative Journalism, really well-known investigative nonprofit that helped organize and do the reporting of the Panama Papers investigation and some other related global investigations of sort of where the global elite rich people hide their money offshore and evade taxes. And that was a sort of a mammoth undertaking that involved collaborations with dozens of different news organizations. Uh, So that's sort of where several of our founders came from. My background is a little different, but the idea behind the examination is to Uh, bring some accountability and investigative reporting to the industries that profit by making products that that really affect the health Mm -hmm. of of millions and millions of people. And so, of course, a key beat for that is tobacco, because tobacco is perhaps the most sort of glaring example of a highly profitable industry that, that damages the health of millions of people a year. The WHO uh, puts the figure of tobacco related deaths at 8 million people a year, more than 8 million. So if you think about that and you compare it with the number of people who die in war or from a host of other diseases or illegal drugs, tobacco really is a much larger societal problem by a long stretch in many respects. We don't just focus on tobacco, but also there are a number of other industries, including big food and the food industry. And of course, we know that obesity, particularly in the West and the United States, is a huge problem, really nearly rivaling tobacco with respect to how many people's health it affects and and the deaths that it causes, as well as sort of standard polluting industries that contaminate our water, our air, and so on, and lead to lead to thousands of deaths. But this specific area, these industries, they tend not to be reported heavily because uh, the way that they affect people's health isn't terribly dramatic, right? If you are a smoker, you can smoke for decades and decades before you develop sort of the chronic diseases that may end your life ultimately. And right. so because of the nature of how these commercial determinative of health industries, how they affect our health, they tend not to have the dramatic impact of lots of other news events like terrorism or pandemics, so on and so forth. So just now, Jason, you said that that the WHO puts the number of people who die annually globally from tobacco at 8 million. Let's try and get our heads around some of the important numbers in China uh, so how many smokers, for example, or, or uh, how how big is the, the overall size of the industry in China and, and how much of the revenues actually flow to the state monopoly, China Tobacco? Yeah, this is a that's a good question. Let's start with just the public health aspect sure. of this first. Um, and so China is by far, by far, by far, by far the world's largest producer and consumer of tobacco each year. Around the globe, there's almost 6 trillion, it's more like 5.8 trillion cigarettes uh, are produced um, globally. It may be a little bit lower than that. China basically consumes about half the world's output now of cigarettes, right? So it has about 20% of the world's population mm-hmm. smokes half the world's cigarettes. Wow. Um, 
So really, when you talk about sort of tobacco as a global health problem, you can't talk about it without talking about China, um, because if you just look at um, uh, there's more than 2.4 trillion cigarettes consumed each year in China. Right. So that is more than the next 67 countries combined. My God. Right? So yeah. if you took India, Indonesia, the United States, Germany, Japan, Brazil, etc., all the way until you got to the 67th largest cigarette consuming um, or 68th, actually. So the next 67 countries combined is equivalent to how many uh, are consumed in China each each year. That's nuts. <laughs> That's just bananas. Yeah. It is. It is. It's uh, it's a really dramatic statistic. And then when you look at the the health problems this causes, we don't have quite as precise data on that in China. We just we don't have the data on that. Very conservative estimates are that more than a million people in China die each year from tobacco related diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, at the upper end, there are some other estimates that put the figure as high as two point seven million. It's likely the figure from the researchers we've talked to is between one and two million, um, right? So, and if you do if you do the math, right? So China smokes almost half the world's cigarettes, but you're like, well, wait a minute, there's more than eight million people that die from tobacco related diseases. If it's one to two million deaths, that's that's it's probably twenty five percent or less of the diseases. Part of the reason for that is that China, until fairly recently, had uh, a relatively young population compared with. Uh, other countries. So really, it's just now that the effects of all the cigarettes that are being consumed there are starting to play out uh, across their healthcare system, across uh, across mortality statistics. So you guys, your piece really focuses on the power of the state monopoly of, of China Tobacco, uh, the STMA or you know the Tobacco Monopoly Bureau. Uh, just how big is it? Uh, it? Is its size something that one can simply ascertain from public records, publicly available, you know, revenue re- reports, stuff like that. Uh, or, or is this something that requires the kind of forensic investigative work that you guys specialize in? Um, give me a sense for how, uh, how, how hard it is to report on an organization like this, and then maybe a sense of how it's structured and, and how it's run. I think in... Like in China, it's a monopoly system. So basically, we have only one company, and it does everything, like from tobacco farming to distribution to selling to retailing, and also it has many other business, like uh, controlling the biggest uh, advertising company in Yunnan province. Hmm. Yeah, so I think the monopoly has also a lot of branches in 19 provinces. And now I think it's going to be bigger because of the taxation policy. Can you explain what's the taxation policy? How is that changing? It's a little bit complicated because it used to be the excise tax in China is going to be turned again because we used to put a lot of emphasis on manufacturer process. So the government right. get a lot of money from like pr- producing cigarettes. But now... The government is turning the like taxation process to the retailing, so it's kind of becoming encouraging every province to sell more cigarettes so that they can get more right. money. So, and this is also good for the monopoly because in this way they can like to reduce the inner competition between provinces and like put more emphasis on 
producing cigarettes in Yunnan province and selling in Shanghai, for them, it's a benefit, like this taxation policy. Right. So this tax policy that perhaps somebody thought would be shifting the tax burden onto consumers and therefore maybe, you know, disincentivizing them from consuming more cigarettes is actually going to have the perverse effect of increasing cigarette consumption because it incentivizes producers to be more aggressive in marketing and, 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 and distributing. Hmm. So, uh, Jason, maybe you can, you can go back to what I was asking earlier about the difficulty in reporting. I mean, Jude just described a very large organization with subsidiaries in, in most of China's 30-odd provinces. Uh, what are we looking at here in terms of the, the opacity of that organization? Uh, that's a great question, actually, because for me, as a, an outsider, as a foreigner who hadn't done a lot of reporting related to China previously, I was surprised in some respects at how much of our reporting was really based on records that are, are public within China. You know, as we mentioned, China Tobacco, the state-run monopoly, it's a government agency. So uh, in, many in many ways, a lot of what they do is, is public, or at least is, is quasi-public. Um, and we can talk a lot, a lot more about that. Um, in other respects, uh, there are some there are some challenges because it's very difficult to just even talk to officials who work for the company uh, as a foreigner, as an independent reporter. Um, they don't uh, they don't publish detailed financial reports as uh, large public companies would elsewhere. Um, but I can, if I can just back up a little bit, I can give you a really brief history of the company, which I think illustrates uh, some of the, the problems that China faces today. Um, so in the early 20th century, uh, it was really British American tobacco uh, that moved into China and, and started producing cigarettes there and really developed China's cigarette markets. Um, and then at the time of the Chinese Civil War, the communists uh, ultimately took control of these cigarette factories and they were sort of slowly nationalized in the 1950s. And mm. I know those of your listeners that listen to your podcast with Matthew Corman, uh, who's an outstanding scholar and has done really detailed work, uh, along with some collaborators, uh, wrote a great book on the history of this company called Poisonous Pandas. Right. Um, so, uh, so in the 1950s, basically all these cigarette factories in different parts of China were nationalized by the Communist Party. Um, but largely they were... Uh, remained under provincial con control. So each provincial government uh, and provincial communist party sort of had influence over the operations of each cigarette factory. And in many ways, there was there was sort of a competitive market within China between these different government-owned cigarette factories. And so you'd have uh, cigarette factories in Shanghai that would compete with cigarette factories elsewhere, and provincial governments would do things like block cigarettes from coming into Beijing from Yunnan because they didn't want they didn't want competition with their local factory. So in many ways, there was sort of this chaotic provincial government run cigarette market in China through the 60s, 70s and then into the early 80s under Deng Xiaoping. You know, Deng, of course, was very outward looking um, and he saw that this 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 wasn't this wasn't a smart way to run the tobacco industry, particularly I think he saw 
that perhaps down the road, China would be competing much more with international companies and that having little factories in all these dozens of different provinces and cities run by local officials, it wasn't going to, it wasn't, the result wasn't going to be a very modern, uh, well-run industry. So uh, that's when China Tobacco was created in the early 1980s to sort of centralize control over all these dozens of little cigarette factories that existed across China. And that's what really when the industry began to be modernized and rationalized in many respects. Now, kind of what's interesting is that at the same time, this cigarette monopoly was set up uh, shortly thereafter. Um, Deng created something that you referenced earlier, the State Tobacco Monopoly Agency, the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration, which was meant to be like the regulator and oversee all aspects of the tobacco industry in China. Jude was mentioning earlier that the China tobacco, for example, determines the price that farmers uh, get paid for their tobacco crop. Um, and it, its, its tentacles across this industry are, are really much deeper and wider than that. They control all aspects of the supply chain. Uh, if you want to truck tobacco in China, you need a license from, uh, from the state tobacco monopoly. If you want to retail tobacco in China, you need a license from the state tobacco monopoly. Now, what's interesting is that sort of the commercial arm of the company, the, the guys who are basically overseeing the cigarette factories, running the cigarette factories, they're the same guys who are also the regulators of this industry. And so this is where the dynamic in China gets really interesting. This is really the central thrust of our story is that it's the cigarette company itself that regulates itself. And this has caused a whole bunch of problems uh, when it comes to public health, because clearly if you're making money selling cigarettes, you don't have any interest to take steps to reduce your sale of cigarettes, if that makes sense. And the fact that this is all nested within the same company is just an enormous conflict of interest that really hasn't been resolved to this day. So it does make sense. And it also makes absolutely no sense. So uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's like there was this great quote from Ray Yip, who used to, to be uh, a, a senior person in China with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, he said it's like a soccer match where China tobacco is both a player and the referee. And that, that, that it really drives it home. So yeah, like you said, you know, your work, this, this piece focuses very much on the fact that China Tobacco, this mega tobacco merchant, is also the regulator. I'm sure that there will be a lot of people who will hear this and just be, you know, what? Did I hear that right? Is I'm in total disbelief. How can moral hazard on that scale be allowed to persist with something especially that's as lethal uh, as, as, as tobacco? So would I be correct to say that at least in its own understanding, China Tobacco doesn't think of itself as the regulator. I mean, it would say, no, the regulator is is the health administrator. The regulator is, you know, the state council. We are, uh, we, we police the industry, but we don't set, I mean, for example, it wasn't the China Tobacco Monopoly Bureau that, that decided we're going to put warnings on labels, right? Um, so in, in what sense do you really mean, just really specifically, is China Tobacco, the, this biggest producer, also actually also the regulator. I can say one thing. During the negotiation of FCTC, the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and it used to, in the draft, it used to say that 
uh, it's the state health administration who control the label warning, but the China Tobacco, who participated in the negotiation, suggested them to change this term to state administration. In this way, they can control the the warning label in China. And in the end, it succeeded in controlling this policy because the health administ- administration, they don't have the right to to change the label on the cigarette packets. It's the STMA who decide everything. So this is the part of the FCTC. The health administration could do nothing. Am I to understand correct, just to, so I get this right, the state tobacco monopoly administration was participating in the negotiations with this UN body ab- about this treaty. Yes. It's like having arms merchants at, at an arms negotiation, it seems like. Yes. Especially at the beginning, like it was trying to control the Chinese delegation. So they are very active. They set up research group and uh, also participating in the negotiation. So, you know, when you talk about how they were able to to enforce their will to, to wield really significant influence uh, over other participants in those negotiations or other governmental agencies, I, w- I want to understand how it actually wields that influence because, you know, China doesn't have anything that we would understand as like a parliament or a... a a, uh, a legislative body, you know, there aren't, uh, you know, lobbyist organizations as we understand them. So how does it co-opt high-ranking officials? And does this, is this like flat-out corruption? How does it step clear of the anti-corruption efforts that have got, been underway for over, uh, over a decade now since Xi Jinping came into office? Uh, is this, I, I, wonder, I, I want to understand the mechanism of influence here. Well, I can I can jump in on that. And sure. I'll, I'll just touch on briefly what you were asking earlier about this distinction between the state tobacco monopoly administration and China tobacco. Within China, there's essentially no distinction. The different terms are used sort of in the context of whether people are talking about regulation or the commercial activities of the company, but it's understood to be one and the same thing. The general manager, the equivalent of the CEO, Zhang Zhanmin of China Tobacco, he's the director of the State Tobacco Monopoly Administration. Now, this is this is a little bit different in the sense that he's a government official. Uh, my understanding is that he holds the same rank as uh, sort of a deputy hmm. governor on the provincial level, right? And in fact, one of our sources when we were you know, we did a lot of reporting about how China tobacco shapes health policies within China. He said that when the, the head of China tobacco comes and meets with the mayor of a city, say a city is trying to pass a, a ban on indoor smoking. It's like a boss talking to his employee in many respects, because he literally outranks uh, a city mayor within sort of the formal hierarchy. But in a lot of ways, this really understates the power of this company, because, you know, as we discuss in our piece, in 2022, the company earned 1.44 trillion RMB. That's $213 billion for the Chinese state. That's 7%, 7% of all of China's government revenues. And it's a figure that's equivalent to China's official defense budget. Wow. So this, this, this gives them a huge amount of power within the government, even relative to other ministers. And the Minister of of Health, for example, is much weaker within the government 
compared with, say, the general manager of China Tobacco. And I think one of the things that magnifies their influence is that within China's government, China Tobacco is part of the Ministry of in- Industry and Information Technology, one of the so-called super ministries right. within the Chinese government that is one of sort of the handful of, of the most powerful industries and is able to exert great influence over the government through the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology as well. But its influence, it's not necess- its not a new thing. And in fact, dating back 20, 30 years ago, you know, China is, is, uh, is a lower middle income country in many respects. Now, of course, 30, 40 years ago, China was much poorer. It was much more dependent than on tobacco revenues to support the state. Even than it is today, the figure was probably more like 10%, 15%, mm. Or more uh, in terms of how much money the central government got from selling tobacco. So in many ways, a lot of its influence comes from its historical significance. That is, it's something of a sacred cow within the government, um, and we can really see that influence. Um, and from our reporting in the 1990s uh, under Jiang Zemin, who, as you know, was trying to open China to the outside world in many respects, he decided to host a major. Uh, international conference on tobacco control in China. And this is in 1997. Mm-hmm. And as part of our reporting, we were able to obtain a letter from China Tobacco to the state council, to Jiang Zemin, to uh, other important players in the government, basically warning them to keep in mind that China Tobacco is the government's single largest earner in the context of this tobacco control conference. And they go on to warn uh, people and how they talk about tobacco control. And mind you, this is back in 1997, that while academics and people in civil society can freely share their opinions on the harms of tobacco, they say government officials should be very careful in what they say. Uh, and, you know, as we, we spoke with a, a noted tobacco control advocate, Judith Mackay, who is uh, a Hong Kong-based tobacco control advocate based um, who's worked in China for a number of years. She said when Jiang Zemin opened that conference, his opening speech was so sort of lukewarm and tepid on this issue of smoking. She said, you wouldn't have known it was a tobacco control conference. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I want uh, to, to, to follow up on this. You've just talked a little bit about the people on the other side, uh, the people who work in advocacy. Uh, you've talked about how Jiang Zemin said, that civil society groups should be able to say what they want, but ultimately they're going to run up against this hard reality. So let's talk about the landscape in terms of anti-smoking advocacy. So, I mean, in my years in China, especially, I'm going to say after 2010 or so, I, I saw quite a bit of effort, publicly at least, to try to curb smoking, or at least I thought I saw that. Uh, the advocates used to be quite outspoken, I thought, about China Tobacco's role in government, uh, too. Before we get into what's gone wrong and why anti-smoking advocates are now losing ground, let's talk about what they had managed to do in the first place. So, uh, Jude, maybe give me a sense of of what sorts of organizations are working against, uh, you know, tobacco's widespread use. What are the existing rules uh, about smoking? Are there, for example, bans on certain types of advertising? Is there mandatory language on packaging? Are there rules about selling to minors? Are there bans on public transportation? Things like that. Where, where are we right now, Jude, in terms of, of advocacy and, and its successes to date? I think the 
the co- tobacco control community in China have succeeded a lot in like legislation, especially in big cities, and also they have done a lot of campaign on, on promoting the public awareness in tobacco. But compared to the tobacco control movement in the U.S., I think the community here they constricted their movement in public health. As I know, in the U.S., public and、uh, tobacco control was part of the civil rights movement. So I think basically it's a human rights issue. In China, the community was mainly consists of the public health experts and also NGOs. So, and the number of those community, those organization are very limited. You can count in one hand, and also they now they lack of funding, so they mainly get money from like other countries organizations. Yes, and also I think they face a lot of pressure from the tobacco、uh, industry because they are scared. By the tobacco company, because the company said that they represent other countries' benefits, like they're trying to trying to sell more cigarettes from the U.S. and also they're representing the Western ideology, such things. Yeah,、mm. no, that's interesting,、um, and that's one of many approaches、uh, that that are taken. Part of the landscape that we're talking about is is cultural. Uh, I think that anyone who's been, for example, to a wedding in China will remember how,、uh, you know, there will be at the reception boxes of cigarettes, or even you know, packs of cigarettes in front of every plate. It's it's pretty crazy. People gift cigarettes all the time. There are all sorts of status markers associated with the brand that you smoke,、uh, the cigarettes that you give, and the cigarettes that you receive. So, Jude, can you talk a little bit about? The role that cigarettes have in Chinese culture and Chinese business culture, in particular, and we'll get to an example of, 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 of how that is sometimes used as a defense by China Tobacco as well. And and also, I'm I'm wondering why it's so gendered, why it is that male smoking is so prevalent compared to female in China, and whether that is similar to other countries or is this particular to China. So let's start with the general smoking culture in China. I think smoking is still very popular in China. Like, if you attend a wedding ceremony, you can see smoking, like cigarettes from maybe Double Happiness, this brand, will be put on the table, and、uh, guests could have a cigarette during this feast. Maybe you won't find this scene in Shanghai because of the legislation; it's prohibited. But you probably find like in Yunnan or. Like in Sichuan, in the southwest part of China, and when I visited Yunnan to do the research in tobacco farming, I see the local farmers they they exchange cigarettes every time when they meet in the villages. So it's, I think it's a way for them to make friends or showing their politeness, showing their friendliness. So regarding the gender. Discrepancy. I think it has something to do with the gender equality in China. So, if a man smokes, you wouldn't think it's a bad behavior. Sometimes you would think it's 
really cool or like showing the masculinity. But but if a woman smoked, maybe she will face some like critics from the public. Yeah, because the public will think that women smoking is not is like immoral. So I think it's the difference. The women in China they generally face more constraints. Do you, do you find Jason that looking at other countries around the world that's similar? That maybe you see a correlation between、uh, disparities in in、uh, smoking between male and female, and the degree of sexism prevalent in society.、Um, I don't know that I would make that precise linkage between、uh, sexism and gender differences、uh, in terms of smoking rates, but there's certainly it's certainly a cultural based issue, and if you look around in The kind of numbers that we see in terms of China's smoking rates、uh, are, are reflective、uh, in other countries in East Asia. For example, in China, about half of men, fifteen, age fifteen and over, smoke. When it comes to women, it's more like two percent. So there's a huge difference. But that's that's not unlike the smoking rates in South Korea or、uh, Japan or Southeast Asia. And in fact, in the Arab world, there's a much more, I think. Clear overt taboo on women smoking, and、uh, women smoking is identified in some ways with being, you know, sort of loose morals or indicating sexual availability, and so there are sort of more overt taboos、uh, there. And I'm not, I, I don't, I don't think I could speak to the extent that exists within China or East Asia in the way that Jude could,、um, but certainly in some other countries, like if you look at in Western Europe and France. Women's smoking rates are virtually virtually identical to male smoking rates, and so it, in some senses,、uh, in other cultural contexts, I think women smoking is associated with independence or sophistication, and a lot of these positive attributions that people may have with smoking, like oh, I'm cosmopolitan if I'm smoking. These are things the tobacco industry has very much fomented and tried to capitalize on. But sort of one of one of the interesting aspects of this story is that within China, that's not that's not really the case as much. China Tobacco does have some brands that are focused and marketed at women, but they certainly haven't been as aggressive in marketing to women as the transnational tobacco companies have. And in fact, an interesting case study is that of Hong Kong, which has very different smoking rates than mainland China. And my understanding from reporting this piece. A lot of this has to do with sort of Hong Kong's different government and historical institutions. But in Hong Kong, most of the cigarettes that you see sold do come from the Western tobacco companies. You see Marlboros or or other Western brands are much more common. But one of the things that happened in Hong Kong is that when the Western tobacco companies moved in several decades ago, they began very aggressively marketing cigarettes. To women,、hmm. there,、uh, you know, if you think of Virginia Slims、right. uh, and some of the brands that Philip Morris and others had that were clearly targeted and clearly marketed to women, and one of one of the sources that I I was talking to about this mentioned that this this marketing, this really aggressive marketing of cigarettes to women, actually engendered a backlash in Hong Kong that was beneficial to the tobacco control movement, to public health officials. Because they were able to cast the the tobacco companies that were doing this as foreigners who were disrupting culture 
and causing causing problems. And so the the tobacco control movement was actually able to capitalize on this. And and you know, there's the story quite it isn't quite this simple, but Hong Kong has had tremendous success in limiting smoking rates and and reducing smoking in part because of this one factor. It's interesting how one in Hong Kong you have, you know, anti-smoking advocates co-opting nationalism and in China it's in mainland China it's quite the opposite. In China, uh, two years ago, the the health ministry they tried to do something for the female smoking. So in their year plan, they they're trying to like curb the female smoking prevalence. But then the Chinese feminists they they deny such behavior because they know that in China the female prevalence is only 2%. So they think this is a strategy from the tobacco company. Interesting. Yeah. Much of your work focuses on really, really fascinating examples of the ways in which China's tobacco has sort of prevailed over these efforts by municipalities, by cities uh, to to ban smoking indoors, for example. Let's let's start with. I mean, I think you, you, a lot of this seems to flow from the city of Chongqing, uh, and you, you you open with that, and uh, you you make the argument that basically after they defeated the indoor smoking ban in in Chongqing, we saw basically no other Chinese cities able to pass bans on indoor smoking. So, uh, let's start with Chongqing. Can you talk about how the China Tobacco? how China Tobacco was able to stop that law from passing in Chongqing. Jude, I know you worked on this, so it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, so it was back in 2019. Uh, I was told by the activist that focused on Chongqing's legislation that Chongqing was going to change their plan for smoke-free legislation. And then we have done some investigation in Chongqing and we can see that even in hospitals there are cigarettes people are smoking oh God. so and we used a PM 2.5 machine to test whether the the air quality is good or bad and in the toilet of a hospital the 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 figure is really high in the toilet so and also in the railway station, people are just smoking indoors and uh, in the pub in the crowds. Yes. So I think the situation of secondhand smoke is really bad in Chongqing, and the thirty-two million people in Chongqing they really deserve a a law to protect them. Yes, and then. Maybe a year later, before the law came out, uh, we know that the the president, the president of STMA, they visited uh, Chongqing and they talked to the party chief and also the mayor in Chongqing. We didn't so know. So Minar was yes. Actually, they there are two levels. Chen Minar was the like Fu Guoji. It's a pretty really uh-huh. high in the party and Zhang Zemin is only Fu Buji. They have the two standards. Yes. So that shows the Zhang Zemin, the the STMA, they have really 
strong power in political. And we didn't know what they talked about, but I think everyone guessed the one of the topic is about the legislation in Chongqing. And after that, um, Chongqing failed to get a smoke-free ed- legislation. And after that, like the other city will apply Chongqing's experience. They would like this case only increased the power of the tobacco industry and it really influenced the tobacco country movement in China in a profound way. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I think I think this is a good question and a key moment in our story that we're talking about. So passing indoor smoking bans was a, a fundamental part of the WHO anti-tobacco treaty that China signed in 2003. And under that treaty, China's supposed to pass a national ban, a ban smoking in all indoor public places, in restaurants, in hotels, in karaoke clubs, in bowling alleys, in schools, in hospitals. What we saw is that China failed to pass this indoor smoking ban. And we can come back to how that failed at the national level. But by 2016, 2017, right, 12, 13 years later after the treaty took effect, China hasn't passed this national smoking law, but we have seen some major cities pass smoking bans of their own that outlaw smoking in restaurants, in hotels, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, so on and so forth. And there's the, the tobacco control community, the public health community has really got some momentum uh, in doing this, they say, okay, we're not going to get this law at the national level, but we can do this piece by piece. Right. What's really important about Chongqing, um, of course, is that it's a huge city, um, and it's one of just four cities where um, you know the city government reports directly to Beijing. Right. Um, and there's about 32 million people uh, in Chongqing, and so there's this big fight about Chongqing. Uh, that all happens behind closed doors. Chongqing city government wants to pass this law. They have a draft law that does exactly this. Lo and behold, just as Jude was saying, the general manager of China Tobacco shows up. He meets with the the head of Chongqing's Communist Party and the mayor. Almost immediately afterwards, the law is changed to allow indoor smoking. Um, And because Chongqing is such an important city, this city is used as a precedent again and again and again in the years that follow um, to essentially block these laws. And other city governments use it as their own excuse not to pass uh, indoor smoking bans. In, in fact, China Tobacco seems to to punish uh, people who fail to put enough pressure on local government to, to squash these indoor smoking bans. For example, you guys talk about how in, in Xining, a city the provincial capital of, of Qinghai province, uh, the local uh, boss of, of the China Tobacco office was was sacked after he didn't successfully op- oppose the indoor smoking ban. Is, is that correct? Yes, we, we, we got this uh, anecdote from quite a lot and members of the community in China. They, they all know this thing. And I think... It's not just Xining and after Chongqing, like every city, when they try to do a legislation in smoke-free, uh, indoor banning smoking indoors, uh, they'll have to talk with the STMA. STMA will send their stuff to talk to influence the 
other departments directly, because they, the staff of STMA, they feel pressure as well, because if they did nothing, if they do nothing, they will get sacked. One one other city that you looked at,、uh, and I think it was it was really kind of illuminating about what China Tobacco's playbook has been like. Uh, in in your piece, Jude, you talk about this letter that was written to officials in June、uh, of this year in a town called Jieshou, which I think is in Anhui.、Uh, they they were considering an indoor ban, and the line of argument in this letter that you laid out went something like, "This ban would hurt China's business culture." So basically, it was an argument from this kind of economic development perspective.、Um, what else was in that letter, Jude? What what did that? And how did you get a hold of something like that? Yes, I think this letter was really precious because usually we couldn't find such documents very easily,、yeah. and this was this is really a good showcase of how tobacco industry trying to influence the tobacco control movement. And I think for me, the most interesting in the letter was the Chinese tobacco is trying to apply the Chinese constitution, yes, to like. Because in the legislation in Jieshou, they are trying to put forward an idea of smoking in your family and smoking control in your family, and the tobacco can tobacco industry they apply the constitution as family is is free from like like the power the public power, so we shouldn't <laughs> do we shouldn't put forward a smoke free family, yeah. You know, in the China, in China,、like、constitution is never applied in a court, but they apply the the constitution to influence. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So,、uh, Jason, you, you just now kind of looked at twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen as kind of the 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 the, the period where the tide seems to have turned. There were all these promising early initiatives, and they seem to have faltered. What what is it that you think happened to bring about this change? Yeah, this is a good this is a good question. So the 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 span of time that the examination and our our colleagues we looked at is really about the last twenty five years、hmm. uh, within China and trying to document China Tobacco's influence,、um, and that included you know the 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 time period in the early two thousands when this bigger national treaty was being negotiated. Then we saw that after China signed that treaty. Promising to do all this stuff to control tobacco, almost none of it happened for a period of about uh, uh, seven, eight, nine years. The tobacco industry grew very fast、uh, in the years immediately after China signed this tobacco control treaty. Then there's a change in leadership in China,、uh, and in 2013, Xi Jinping becomes president, and tobacco control was an issue that he wanted to he wanted to do work on,、um, and so sort of in the period. 2013 to 2016, we did see that China took a number of fairly significant steps to control tobacco.、Um, you know, we saw that there were there were there were bans in major cities. There was an increase in cigarette taxes, which is probably the simplest, most straightforward way right, to right. reduce smoking.、Um, I was, remember, was, like、uh, in the in the public sort of propaganda effort, we had Peng Liyuan. And and Xi Jinping, I think, was was actually there at some of the events. And she did stuff with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I remember I, I got in a little bit of you know trouble because、uh, Baidu, the company I was working for at the time, was actually 
participating in these. Our CEO went and attended, and he had a you know took a picture with Bill Gates wearing an anti-smoking shirt. He's a militant anti-smoker, but our CFO, who I worked for, was actually on the board of Philip Morris. And one of a student observer uh, put put that together, <laughs> and uh, you know what are you going to do? I mean, nothing I could I could really do to weasel out of that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's interesting. Be- you, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, but it, at that time, it seems like th- there was real momentum, right? Yeah, you know, so uh, there was a lot of momentum. We can talk maybe just a little bit about Xi and his interest in this issue uh, before we get to the the question that you initially asked. Um, we we do know that Xi Jinping was a, a smoker himself. Um, from the sources we've read, we understand he started smoking actually. Uh, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, when he was he was sent to a rural part of China to do to do work, uh, basically um, as as uh, a form of re-education, um, we understand that he did quit smoking in the early 1990s, around the time that he married his second wife, Peng Lian, uh, who you mentioned, um, and she herself becomes an ambassador for. Uh, the Chinese Association on Tobacco Control and sort of a public spokesperson starting in about 2009 at the same time, um, both Xi and Yao Ming, the famous basketball player, became uh, sort of anti-smoking spokespeople at that time. And there's some indication that she may have done this at Xi's behest because hmm. he thought that this was an issue he wanted to be out front on. And of course, Peng herself was already a celebrity in China and was very well known. But then we see, you mentioned this meeting between Peng and Bill Gates in 2012. They're photographed together wearing these bright red t-shirts with anti-smoking messages on them. Uh, This is during a visit of Bill Gates to Beijing. Uh, And they're both holding out their hands in like the stop signal. And this photograph of Bill Gates, who of course is well known within China, is ultimately used as part of a, a tobacco control campaign by anti-smoking groups on uh, on the subway. There are posters made of it, uh, so on and so forth, for about a year. Then interestingly, you know, according to our reporting, the Chinese Association on Tobacco Control gets a phone call from the health minister who orders that the, this poster be taken down. Um, they're told that it's demeaning to the first lady to have her uh, in a tobacco control campaign. There were some other comedians and actors whose photos were also used and suggested this is um, sort of a, a loss of face for the first lady to be featured in this way. But it, it's a strange it's a strange sounding campaign. And so we don't know exactly what the genesis was or why the first lady is pulled from this uh, in 2013. But we do know that sort of in spite of this, she does push some significant tobacco control measures in his first few years in office. Um, I talked about uh, citywide smoking bans and cigarette taxes, maybe the most significant thing, and Jude can speak to this as well, was an order that that officials, that cadres should no longer smoke in public, that they shouldn't uh, right. appear on television, they shouldn't be in public meetings smoking. Um, and this is really seen as a message coming from the top because it's coming both from the, the state council and from the party itself, that this is no longer okay to, to, to do this. Um, and so there's a lot of momentum going into this 2016 period, 2017 period, and then things start to change. And what appears to happen is that China tobacco becomes much more aggressive in pushing back on other parts of the government, on other parts of civil society that are advocating 
for tobacco control. And they become much more effective in their messaging and much more directive, say, to local officials uh, who are interested in passing smoking bans that they shouldn't that they shouldn't be doing this. And so, you know, a lot of our piece focuses on the issue of smoking bans in China and this big fight within the Chinese government as to whether or not those should be passed. But actually, there's many other methods of tobacco control. Um, but essentially, by this period, China tobacco had, had basically sealed off most of these. Um, you know, there was one cigarette tax increase. That's the only one, essentially, that's happened in over 20 years in China. Um, there's cigarette warning labels, as Jude mentioned. Those are written and designed by China Tobacco itself, by the same people who are selling you cigarettes, are designing and writing the cigarette labels. So as you can imagine, those cigarette labels are not terribly descriptive. They're not graphic. In fact, in many cases, they blend right in with the beautiful packaging of, uh, of Chinese cigarettes. Um, and so there are all these other range of ways that smoking can be reduced. But really, there's this focus by the public health community on smoking bans because they feel like that's really the only element that they can influence. And then starting in 2016, 2017, moving into 2018, momentum on that really stops. And, and there really hasn't been much good news uh, for the tobacco control community over the last five years. Jude, has the new generation of younger people coming up, have they gotten, you know, more interested in the fight, less interested in the fight? I mean, my sense is that they've gotten pretty quiet. I don't hear it a lot. Is this just the power of, of China tobacco? Or do you think that, that, that there has been sort of a sense that they've already been defeated? Yes. Like... um in big cities like Shanghai, Beijing, we could see that the smoking prevalence is decreasing and the, the younger generation, they wouldn't like to be a smoker like their fathers. But I think in rural areas, that's, it's a different picture. Like the, the younger generation, they think smoking is still very cool. So they, they're trying to be like smokers. And also I think um, so it's different between rural and the city. And I think smoking, uh, tobacco control in China is not like a core issue, even in the public health community. So it's it's kind of, it's not in the center of the public health issues. So I think that's why the, the tobacco control community is, is feeling anxious because they don't have much energy. I understand, yeah. There's also been a lot of sort of negative examples. Uh, Jude, in your in your piece, you talk about a researcher named Xie Jianping who became a member of the very prestigious Chinese Academy of Engineering in 2011, largely because he had done work looking at the, the claims of so-called light or low-tar cigarettes that were being sold. Uh, I think before 2000, 13. So there is uh, an event, there was an event in China, like Xi Jinping was going to be elected as uh, a highly high level academician in Zhongguo Gongchenyuan. And, and it's not the community which funded this news, but like somebody in the a volunteer, and he said, why is a uh, and member from the 
tobacco industry is going to be a high-level academician in China. So that's really questionable. And then the community, the tobacco control community, they tried everything they could to to change that, to prevent that from happening. And also the 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 vice minister, the former vice minister of health department, they also talked in public, tried to prevent that from happening. But in the end, like the community failed, and Xi Jinping still like very active in tobacco control, and and also one thing Xi Jinping has done is years ago, maybe ten years ago, he wrote a paper and suggesting that the tobacco, the STMA, should control the e-cigarettes industry in China, because yes. And that really happened in 2021. The STMA, they controlled the e-cigarettes in China. So now the e-cigarettes producer, they have to sell their e-cigarettes to to the Chinese tobacco. And then the Chinese tobacco will sell their those e-cigarettes to the, to the public. Wow. So let me get this right. You know, I, I, my understanding was that China Tobacco did not have a big market share in e-cigarettes prior to 2021. And so it was on the suggestion of this guy, Xi Jinping, uh, who who has now basically helped to hand control of, of the vaping market entirely to, to China Tobacco. Is that right? It's like... Uh... Because before uh, 2021, in China, it's not clear which department should like control, supervise the e-cigarettes industry. And uh, Xi Jinping, he is a representative of the tobacco industry. So he suggested for a longer time that the Chinese tobacco company, the STMA, the state monopoly, should be the supervisor of e-cigarettes industry. And after about 10 years, this suggestion came true that STMA is controlling e-cigarettes company. And Chinese tobacco, they didn't, they don't produce e-cigarettes like uh, domestically. So, so they just step inside the e-cigarettes industry and get money and actually just do nothing. I th- Although they have like prohibited flavored e-cigarettes totally in China because they think that will introduce more younger smokers to become e-cigarettes users. Right, same thinking as in America, right? Yeah, but actually they don't change their policy of flavored conventional cigarettes. So there are still a lot of conventional cigarettes with flavor being sold in Chinese markets. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, this is a really interesting issue that Jude that Jude raises um, uh, because China Tobacco has made the sale of of these low tar reduced harm cigarettes really its core business strategy, and it's it's important to be clear about this. This is something that uh, the Western tobacco companies uh, did starting in the 1960s when the first science emerged that smoking causes lung cancer. Um, obviously, there was a lot of public concern about this. And the way the tobacco companies responded was saying, we're going to make the cigarettes less harmful for you. We're going to start making low tar cigarettes. We're going to start making light cigarettes, right? And 
those of us of a certain age, of course, can all easily remember a time when you could buy Marlboro lights or Camel lights in the U.S. You can't do that anymore. And the reason why is that after this went on for decades and decades, essentially public health researchers realized that these Camel lights or Marlboro lights, those cigarettes, in fact, these low tar cigarettes, the harms that they cause are just as great as regular filtered cigarettes. And the reasons for this, they're a little complicated, but basically the way they measure the tar content in a cigarette, the way that the cigarette industry did it was they had robots essentially smoking the cigarettes in the same way. And then they would sort of measure the amount of carcinogens and harmful chemicals in the smoke. Um, but what happens is that people don't smoke cigarettes in the same way that robots do and people are after nicotine. So they would suck harder on the light cigarettes they would inhale the smoke deeper into their lungs and often cases is right could cause more deadly forms of lung cancer so this whole project of low tar cigarettes was really shown to be essentially a a lie and the cigarette companies you know as as later emerged um, as a result of lawsuits in the u.s they knew this they knew this and eventually they were forced to change course in china that that is not the case um and to this day, this, this, the sale of low-tar cigarettes, the sale of cigarettes that China tobacco markets as being less harmful to the public, that's their core business strategy in a lot of ways. You, you even, Jude talked about flavorings. Um, it's common to see China tobacco cigarettes flavored with Chinese medicinal herbs like ginseng or caterpillar fungus. Yeah, Zhongnan High, a very popular brand. It has, has right, that. or the way they market, uh, you mentioned Zhongnan High. One of the ways they market the cigarettes is they, they have uh, like the number five displayed very prominently uh, on them. And that's the, and that's a reference to the tar content and it cues the smoker, oh, this is there's only five milligrams of tar, the cigarette, it's not as harmful to me as another one, right? So they're not making very overt claims, but... The messaging is still there for the cigarette consumer. Um, And so what was so controversial about this episode involving the tobacco academician is that one of China Tobacco's own scientists, one of the guys who's trying to research ways to make these so-called low-tar cigarettes, is elected to one of the most prestigious scientific academies in China. And of course, other scientists in the academy are just horrified by this. And there's this huge public outcry around his election to this. He's criticized widely in state media. There's even an editorial uh, by state media saying, this guy doesn't doesn't belong. The science he does is not, it's not helpful science. He's trying to sell people cigarettes that give them cancer. So there's huge public outcry. He's allowed to remain in the academy. As Jude mentions, he writes this paper about e-cigarettes that turns out to be very prescient and how China Tobacco needs to regulate them. But, you know, one of the things to take away from that episode, I think that's important is that at that time, 2011, 2012, 2013, there could be a really public discussion about this issue. And this guy, he's still in the academy, but he was publicly shamed essentially by others in the media, by other people in civil society criticizing him in a way that I don't think would be possible today in China because the media is not able to criticize somebody who's part of the government in that way as uh, as they are in civil society tobacco control groups clearly don't feel as free to criticize and even on an issue most of us wouldn't think of this as being a political issue um, but of course 
Of course it is in some senses, but the restrictions on civil society have really reached to the tobacco control groups. And I think particularly over the last five years, this is kind of the core reason why China Tobacco has been so ascended. Not only are they part of the government, not only are they in the room when the decisions about tobacco control are being made, other people who are arguing the other side have seen their voices greatly diminished, both in the public sphere and behind closed doors. Yes. Wow. And I think similar things is happening, just like Jason said, we could do nothing. For example, uh, these days when I was reading some academic journals from the industry, they they told that they are going to incorporate some research about tobacco industry into the national scientific funding. So does that make sense? So they are going to plan some research about tobacco in the national level, in the national funding. So I think that's something the community should be doing something, but actually the community is doing nothing because, yeah. Uh, depressing. Uh, well, you know, Jude, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. There is so much more in the amazing uh, piece that you've worked on. It's at the Pulitzer Center. Uh, and there's actually a couple of pieces in this series. Uh, I, I want to encourage everyone to read them both. It's called Smoking for the State. They probably considered puffing for the party, but I went with Smoking for the State. It's, it's on the Pulitzer Center website again. There's also a shorter version that ran in USA Today, and you can find it all on the examinations website as well. Uh, we will be sure to put up links for that. Meanwhile, let us uh, move on to recommendations. Just a very quick reminder first that our next China conference is just about six weeks away. Have you gotten your ticket yet? If not, then the full-day conference takes place on November 2nd, includes quite a few guests who frequent cynical listeners may remember, not only our keynote speaker, Yasheng Huang, who I interviewed here about three weeks ago, but also people like Dmitry Sevastopoulos uh, from the FT, Ling Ling Wei from the Wall Street Journal, Evan Feigenbaum, uh, who everyone knows here, he's been on the show many times, and a panel that I am particularly excited about, which will look at the mind of modern China uh, with two of the deepest thinkers I know. We're going to get really philosophical. Isa Ding from Northwestern University and Taisu Zhang from Yale. Uh, night one, the evening of November 1st, will feature a live Seneca taping and a dinner. It's a VIP event, but please sign up for that as well. Seneca is going to focus on China and the Global South, and who better than Eric Olander, who runs the China Global South Project and its podcast, which is part of the Seneca Network, and Maria Repnikova of Georgia Tech, who's been doing all sorts of really fascinating work on Chinese soft power, focusing on East Africa and especially on Ethiopia. So check that out. You're not going to want to miss that. Get a VIP ticket. Not only to get priority seating at any of our speaker sessions and workshops, but also so you can join us on the first. Go to www.nextchinaconference.com for more information. All right, folks, I hope to see you there, but let's move on to recommendations. Jude, what do you have for us? Why don't you start? Yes, I would recommend a book named uh, Zhang Chunqiao, 1949 and Beyond, and you know, Zhang Chunqiao was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party during the Cultural Revolution, and this book mm -hmm. told us, tells the story of uh, the Cultural Revolution, this 10-year period, and from the perspective of Zhang Chunqiao. And 
it was written by Zheng Zhong, who worked for a Wenhui newspaper in Shanghai. At that time, yeah, Zheng Zhong was a house correspondent. Yeah, just like me, and and he told a very, very fascinating story about Zhang Chunqiao and this Tian Year, and I picked this book because、um, it's also a reminder for me that although,、uh, like as journalists being in a difficult environment may be our misfortune, but it makes our responsibility to document even more important. Sometimes we should just. Go beyond our personal reporting field to record more of what we experience、uh, that is happening. We should be able to view issues from a broader standpoint. I think Zhang Chunqiao. For those of you who don't know who he is, I mean, he's most famous as one of the Gang of Four, along with、uh, Yao Wenyuan and Wang Hongwen, and of course Jiang Qing.、Uh, so no, I, I've n- never read that book. Is it in English or is it in? I I search a lot、uh, on the internet, but I didn't find an、uh, English version. So I guess it's not translated. Yeah. So Zhang Chunqiao by Zheng Zhong,、uh, formerly of the Wenhui Bao. Very very good recommendation. Thanks thanks. Excellent excellent. And Jason, what do you have for us? Yeah,、um, my recommendation is going to be a little less intellectual than Jude. So I am a big fan of this series called Top Boy, which.、Uh, It's a British crime drama.、Yeah. Drama originally aired on Channel Four, I think, in the UK.、Um, now it's part of Netflix.、Uh, but it's a great, great, great crime series. Great drama. If you like The Wire, if you like Narcos,、uh, it gives you a lot of insight into, you know, sort of a different walk of life that people have in in London.、Um, and it's a it's a really gripping. Personal story, I feel like. So my recommendation is Top Boy. Yeah, I, I I started it. I got one episode in, and I got distracted by something else. But that's a great reminder to go back to it because I really liked it. It was very good.、Uh, definitely watch it with the subtitles on. If that's、know. right, there are a lot of Jamaican West Indian accents that 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 can be challenging for 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 people who aren't used to them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was,、uh, but excellent, excellent recommendation. Thanks. All right,、uh, mine is the music of Florence Price, who was a, an American composer who died in 1953,、uh, and I was not really familiar with much of her stuff at all until the Philadelphia Orchestra came to town and played a couple of her pieces,、uh, including her Symphony Number、no. Three. I was just floored at how beautiful, how moving that Third Symphony is. I've since now gone and heard her first and her fourth. Her second is missing. And、uh, I, all the other available music that that is is there,、uh, I would highly recommend the Philadelphia Orchestra's 2021 recording of her symphonies number、no. one, number、no. three. They won a Grammy for that, and it's just an exquisite recording and just beautiful compositions. Now, her story is crazy. I mean, she she's you know an African American composer doing you know modern classical music and, and really weaving in. African American music,、uh, in kind of the same way that 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 Slavic music was weaved in in some of my favorite by some of my favorite composers、uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, beginning you know mid century in in the nineteenth century. But、uh, the story of the rediscovery of so much of her music after two thousand nine. So in two thousand nine, there was this dilapidated house in some rural town, like it was called Saint Anne or something like that,、uh, in in Illinois, 
where she was using this as a sort of summer house, and they discovered this gigantic cache of her hitherto unknown works, including uh, uh, one of her symphonies, and uh, it was the fourth symphony, and and two violin concertos, and dozens of other really great pieces. So, uh, again, I would recommend that you start with the Philadelphia Orchestra's 2021 recording of Symphony 1 and Symphony 3. Um, and boy, is it good. Just uh, reminds me that I don't listen to enough contemporary classical music. Anyway, uh, Jason, Jude, thank you once again. What a fantastic conversation, and congratulations on, on this excellent piece. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. A real pleasure making both your acquaintance. Jude, Jason, I hope you come back. And uh, please keep me apprised of, of future collaborations and uh, uh, more work that you do on health-related issues in China. Will do. Thanks again. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com, or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on the social media platforms like Seater or Facebook at, at the China Proj, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.